Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is made known or revealed from faith to faith. As it stands written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for gathering the saints of God to worship our God. Father, we praise you for what you have done through your son, and we will do that for the rest of eternity. We glory in the son. We magnify the name of the son for you have given him a name that is above every name. And we willingly bow and we willingly confess that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. So, Father, as we meet in his name, I pray that you'd fill us with your spirit and that you would animate and empower the preaching of your word and that you would allow and enable our hearts to hear the word with great joy, thanksgiving and humility. And that we would all respond in humble, obedient faith to what we hear and allow it to shape and change who we are into the image of the one that we have come to worship. Lord, we praise you and we love you in Jesus precious name. Amen. Now, this is an instructional sermon, and I struggle with instruction from the pulpit. It's not devotional. Those are much easier from the pulpit. How I like to do these things is in the fellowship hall with my marker board and a marker, and you guys seated at the tables, and you guys asking questions to help move us along, because sometimes it's difficult to teach particular things. And last week, we tackled the gospel and I was not satisfied with that at all. I was frustrated all week. I was ready to preach again Tuesday to try to clean up the mess and those sort of things. But there's three terms in here that really need to be addressed because I said that this 16 and 17, this is the thesis statement of the entire letter. And he brings up three huge theological words. One is the gospel, the other is faith, and the third one is righteousness. And then he spends the rest of the book expounding those three words. And so really all that I'm trying to do is introduce those three words to you so we can begin to think and our thoughts begin to be developed about what these words mean according to the word of God. Last week we looked at the gospel and I told you that we consider the gospel wrongly in two ways. The first one of those ways is we consider it as an invitation. And I do realize that sometimes we invite people to receive the Lord in a particular moment. But in Scripture, most often it's not an invitation, it's a declaration. God is declaring to us what he has done through his son. And so when we hear the declaration of God, it's, it's again, it's not an invitation to believe, but rather it's a declaration that we hear as a command and obey. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's a command. It's, it's not an invitation. The second thing is we think of salvation funny because we think of salvation in a past tense or an accomplished sense. And the majority of the time in Scripture, salvation is in a present tense. We are presently being saved. And that's what he's doing here in verse 16. It says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. It's being accomplished right now. God says, listen, for those of you who are of faith, you need to know what I'm doing. By my power, I am saving you. And that's why it's such a joyful proclamation because we say the gospel is good news and that's God's good news to you. By my power, I am working salvation for you, right? And so these are the things of the gospel that we sometimes think a little bit sideways. But there are some things that we do get right. Like I just said, we consider the gospel to be good news because 118 is, is terrible news because 118 begins with for the wrath of God. And so if you understand how horrible of a condition that you are in apart from Christ, when you hear what God has done for you, the only thing that you can do is your heart just leap for joy and you worship God for what he has done, right? And then the second thing is that we get right is that this gospel is for everyone. 
And Paul will talk more about that, but that's, that's the reference in verse 16 when he says to the Jew first and also to the Greek, because for the Apostle Paul, that included everyone. You were either a Jew or a Gentile. And Paul just says, no, listen, for everyone, whether Jew or Gentile, all those who believe, every single one of them, it does not matter where they are from or what they have done. The good news is for everyone. And so these are the things that we get right. But this morning, I want us to understand faith because faith demands understanding. If there is no understanding, there is no possibility for faith. And so we have to understand a technical term. It has to be taught. And it's a bit of a puzzle, if you will. Faith is invaluable. And we'll see in the text, without faith, there is no salvation. But listen, if you put too much value on faith, you ruin it. It's a puzzle. And that's why I almost entitled this sermon, The Mystery of Faith. It's absolutely invaluable, but if you put too much value on faith, you've ruined it and it's no longer faith. So we have to be careful as we consider this. Uh, the first thing I want to turn to, and there's uh, several of these things that I want us to consider, is just that what I began talking about, that if you, know, if you do too much with it, You've ruined your understanding of it. And there's endless illustrations about faith. And the first one that always comes to my mind when we begin to consider faith is the illustration of the PVC pipe. And when you think about this, it's really easy to understand. You want to drink a water in your house. And the first thing that you do is you go to the faucet and you turn on the faucet. Out comes the water and you take a drink to satisfy your thirst. And when you drink that water down, what are you thankful for? Are you thankful for the PVC pop? Do you say, God, I, I praise you for this PVC that's running under my house to bring me this water. You don't even consider the PVC pop. You're thankful for the water. Water is what you desired. Water is what satisfied you. But without the PVC pop, there'd be no water in the house. Now, I got that picture when I went to Rwanda when they got up early every morning before the sun came up and they got their two yellow government issued buckets and they walked to the city well, however far that was for them. They drew two buckets. They went back and used that water for the day. And at the end of the day, if they needed more water, you'd see just literally hundreds of people walking down the road carrying their yellow government issued buckets to go get water from the well. And if you live in that context and somebody puts PVC up under your house and all of a sudden you go to the faucet and flip it on, you're much more thankful for the PVC. But you and I drink water every day and you haven't even thought about that pipe, but that pipe is the faith. And that water is what you need, what you desire. Spurgeon used the illustration of faith being a hand, and this is a wonderful illustration as well. The body is hungry. The body needs food. And we'll extend that, extend that illustration into the fact that Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And so the only thing that satisfies is that bread and we need that bread. But how do we receive that bread to eat? Is it not through our hand? That hand receives that bread and that hand lifts that bread to that mouth and that mouth eats and that body is satisfied. And that whole body is thankful for what? The hand? We don't even think that way, do we? We praise God for the food. But without the hand, how will you receive the food? And see, there's endless illustrations to help us to understand it. Without faith, salvation is possible. But if you put too much emphasis on faith, you've missed the entire point. Because the thing that we desire is not so much the faith. Really, it's not the faith at all. The thing that we desire is the grace. Again, I'll quote Spurgeon a couple of times. He said this as well. He said, we would do well to remember this, for else you may fall into error by fixing your mind so much upon the faith, which is the channel of salvation, as to forget the grace, which is the fountain and source of our salvation. So you've got to be careful with faith. You have to understand it, but don't put too much emphasis on it or you'll ruin it. Paul said this in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So we have to spend our time understanding it this morning. First thing that I want to come to, and I think there's about eight of these we'll roll through. It's been a great day for a handout, but again, we're not in the fellowship hall. First thing that we need to consider is the simplicity of faith. 
There really is nothing more simple than faith, especially if you consider the illustration of our hand bringing up food to our mouth. It's easy to understand. In fact, faith is so simple to understand. A child can hear the truths and and the profound glories in the gospel and they can believe. A child. A child can exercise saving faith and many of your children have and, and will. And that's just how God designed it, that it might be simple. When I was thinking of that, I considered Luke 18, and I went to study that passage for a while. And this is what the Lord writes. It says, they were bringing even their babies to Jesus so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I say to you, who does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Now, when I taught that, I told you the context is about humility, the humility of a child. And I stand by that. The context of that passage is about humility. You must respond in humble faith. But you can't get away from that part of that passage that's in the present tense where he says, in regard to children, the kingdom of God belongs to these. And the word child is a small child that's used in the text, padilla. It's before puberty. It's a very small child. And a lot of preachers that I deeply respect use this passage to prove their point that all children will go to heaven if they pass. Now, I do believe that, but I don't necessarily run to this passage to to prove that particular point. But we do have to understand that faith is so simple that a child can respond in humble, obedient faith to the truths of the gospel and be saved. That's simply the way that God has designed it. I thought of another passage that was so simple, and this one is in regard to a Roman soldier as Paul was singing in the prison cell and the soldier yells out to the apostle Paul, what must I do to be saved? You Remember what Paul said? Bow your head, close your eyes. Repeat after me. It's not what he said. Paul didn't say, A, admit that you're a sinner. Believe. Confess. He didn't go through that. He didn't go through the one that I, taught, that I was taught when I was a child. Faith. Forsaking all, I trust him. And you go through the acronym and then have somebody follow you in prayer in order to be saved. You remember what Paul said? Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That was Paul's response. Makes us a little uncomfortable, right? But that's the simplicity of faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the response again of the apostle. So the first thought as we consider faith is, again, I might complicate it, but I certainly don't mean to complicate it because it is incredibly simple. It's probably this most simple theological term that you will find in the Bible. And we'll give words to it even now because I want to move from the simplicity of faith to the definition of faith. Because the Bible is so careful to define faith and you don't find this often in the Bible. But God's very careful to define it for us. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, the Lord says, Now faith is. And he describes it for us. In the NASB, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Assurance can also be translated confidence, which makes it easier to remember. Faith is the confidence and the conviction. It's the confidence in what God has done through his son. That's where my confidence rests. And the Bible says that's faith. And it goes on to describe it as the conviction. Not only is it my confidence, but it's my conviction. Again, it pointed to the fact that this is where I rest. What God has done through his son on Calvary on my behalf is where I rest. I am so convicted by that that my confidence is in that. And so the Bible even goes to the extent of defining faith for us. My kids, Abby and John, just went to church camp with Stephen Barber. And he spent the whole week defining faith for them. And his definition is really good. Stephen said it is the confidence in the person and the promises of God. 
And that's what my kids came away with this week. That's faith. It's confidence in the person and in the promises of God. But it can be reduced further, can it? There's one word that helps you understand what faith is, and that's the word trust. I mean, there's no better word in Greek, in Hebrew, in any other language, in Latin, than our English word trust, because that's exactly what faith is. Faith is just simply trust. Now, here's where we begin, we begin to need to be careful because there's an action of faith. Faith has an action. Now listen, it refuses to be a work, but it's best understood when we see it at work. This is a bit of a puzzle. Faith refuses to be a work. If it becomes a work, it's ruined. But we best understand faith when we see it at work. The mistake that we often make is when we try to put faith in a box or we try to make the response of faith into a particular message. We like to say, do this or do that because we want to be able to tangibly measure faith. Or we might say that faith looks like this or faith looks like that. But how in the world can you box up something so wonderful and so powerful and try to define it in very particular terms. I don't think you can. Another illustration that I think is very useful in, in seeing the action of faith is a little child standing on the side of the pool. And if you're a parent, you've all experienced this. As mom and dad got in the pool and the child standing on the side of the pool with the toes on the edge and they're squatted down and they're trying to jump without jumping and they're trying to lean in and, and fall into dad's arms. And we understand that they finally trusted when those little legs straighten up and those toes extend and they fall toward dad and dad catches them. And we've just seen faith at work because until there's the action, we still question the trust or the faith, right? Now, here's what we like to do. And Southern Baptists are as guilty as anyone else that I know. We come alongside that child and we want to give them a different way to define their faith. Take this lollipop and suck on it if you trust dad. They'll grab it out of your hand. They'll pop it in their mouth and they'll walk away from the pool going, I've exercised faith. And the only thing that you've done is you gave them something to do that they were willing to do. And you define that as faith. See, we've got to be so careful and allow the Holy Spirit to exercise the gift of faith in our hearts. And we don't need to be the one defining what faith looks like. I got a dear friend. I actually went over out of the country with him to preach the gospel together. Theologically, we don't line up much at all, but we both preach the gospel. We both love the Lord. But he told me of a particular instance that we argued about so much that we kind of parted ways and, and just agreed to stop talking about the subject. But he had a young lady come to his church and as he was preaching the gospel, she wanted to be saved. And so he did what he does and he led her in a prayer. The next Sunday, she came back to be baptized. And as she was putting the gown on and she approached the water and she realized what was about to take place, she said, hold up just a second. They're in the back. The people are waiting. The curtain is up. And she says, if I understand this right, I need to stop living with my boyfriend. He said he had enough sense to say, yeah, you do. You don't need to walk through these waters of baptism and, and tell everybody you're going to follow Jesus. If you're not going to follow Jesus, why would you do that? And she said, I am not willing to do that. She walked down out of the baptistry, took her gown off, left church. He came back down as awkward as it was, approached the pulpit and went on right preaching. In his mind, he said, I'm so thankful she was saved, even though she was unwilling to be baptized. To which I argued, no, God challenged her in her faith and she refused to trust the Lord. He is the one that brought conviction on her heart. He is the one that was bringing her to faith. And she is the one that said no. And so we argued about the salvation of this young lady that I'd never even met. See, there's other passages that you have to be considered. For instance, when the Lord talked about the four souls, he said there is a particular soul in which they believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. That's the reality. 
And people are so willing and welcome to follow along or jump through our hopes to define their faith. It's pretty simple to bow your head and repeat after me. You can do that all day long. Or for instance, we might call these steps an altar. I don't think you should do that, but we should invite people to walk down and do whatever it is that we say we do. And that's pretty comfortable for people. But when you tell them to follow Christ, meaning it means to turn away from yourself and turn away from your sin, well, that makes me pretty uncomfortable, right? But how can you trust in Him as Lord and Savior and deny Him in so many areas of your life? There's a lot of difficulty in those things. See, see, faith is funny. And I would never define faith that way. I never would say to a particular person, if you want to get saved, you need to move out. Again, I'm trying to box in the response of faith and I do not know what the Lord is doing to bring them to faith. There's a very fascinating journey and I picked the Gospel of Luke because we've already been through it. So let's take a little bit of a walk. Go back with me to the Gospel of Luke and let's start in chapter 7 and let's see the action of faith. It might be difficult to put to words, but it is very easy to see. And there's a number of people that come to faith in particular ways, peculiar ways in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 7. Look at verse 37. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She kept wiping them with the hair of her head, kissing his feet, anointing them with the perfume. Let's jump to verse 44. Turning toward the woman, Jesus said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but since I got here, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who can forgive sins? And Jesus says to the woman again, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, would you dare to define the gospel in that way? Let me tell you the method in which you can be saved. Fall at the feet of Jesus, kiss his feet, and use your tears to wash his feet. That's a peculiar thing. And yet, when you see the action of faith, you begin to understand what faith looks like. And we could certainly go on and talk about the love of Christ to define a faith, could we not? That you love Jesus so much that you are absolutely, utterly willing to make a fool out of yourself just to bring him glory. I would do anything, anywhere, at any time because I love him so dearly. You can certainly do that with that passage. Let me take you to another one. Turn the page to Luke chapter 8, verse 43. Verse 43, a woman who had hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his cloak and immediately her bleeding stopped. And Jesus said, who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone did touch me for I know power went out from me. And when he saw that the woman or when the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before Jesus, declared in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she had immediately been healed. And Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has sozo, translated, made you well. Literally, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Same word for salvation. That's an interesting expression of faith. Hiding in a crowd, not knowing, wanting anyone to know why you're there, what you're about to do. And yet you reach out and grab a hold of the gown of Jesus and you're immediately healed. And Jesus says, your faith has saved you. And again, we see the action of faith. A couple more. Go with me to Luke 17. Let's look at verse 12. 
Luke 17, verse 12, as he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourself to the priests. And as they were going, they were all cleansed. Now, one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. He fell on his face at, fell on his face at Jesus's feet, giving thanks to him. And this man was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed? See, ten were healed, but the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to him, stand up and go. Your faith has sozo. Translated here, made you well, but they were all made well. It's the word saved. Your faith has saved you. What did he do? I mean, he just came back to God, glorifying God, praising God, giving thanks to God. And Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Faith is absolutely amazing. It expresses itself in, in so many ways. Look over. You probably don't even have to turn the page. Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Very familiar with this parable. 18, verse 10, rather. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. The other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this way. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. He kept beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. How about that for saving faith? Standing at the back of a church, beating your breast, unwilling to even lift your eyes up to God because you're so overwhelmed in your sin and you just beg him for mercy. And God says, your faith has saved you. You get this. One of my favorite is the last one I'll mention. Turn the page. Luke chapter 19. This one is one of the most interesting to me. Luke says, Jesus entered Jericho. He's passing through and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was. And he was unable because of the crowd for he was a very small man. So he ran on ahead. He climbed into a tree in order to see him for he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to that place, he looked up and he saw him and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for today. I must stay at your house. He hurried. He came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to complain, saying, oh, Jesus is gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped everyone and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, half of my wealth I give to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I'll pay it back four times. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. You're like, wait, what? That was faith. Faith so worked in the heart of this rich man. He says, hey, here's half my book, half my wealth, half my checkbook. Just take it. And listen, if anybody out there thinks I've cheated them, here's four times back. Just please forgive me for what I've done. Jesus said, no, that's faith. You see, it, it may be hard to grasp, especially when I try to explain it. But when you see it, it's pretty amazing. And you really begin to understand biblical faith in Jesus at work. Now, we always run. You can be heading back to Romans, if you will. Head to the right, Romans chapter 3. I do realize that when we preach the gospel, we preach a specific set of doctrines that are required to be believed. And then we lean upon Romans 10, 9, where it says, don't go there, you're in Romans 3, but we lean upon Romans 10, 9 that says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we love that. And, and it's very true. But the problem is you and I like to define 
their confession and their belief in their heart. And we simply cannot do that. The confession and the belief in the gospel is in the soul. And you and I don't have eyes that can see into the souls of men. I wish we did, but we don't. But God is not deceived and God does see into the souls of men. And he knows when a person has confessed Jesus as Lord. And he knows when a man has believed within his heart who Jesus is and what he has done. We simply cannot box faith in and let it be described in particular ways. So that's the action of faith. And let me move on to the object of faith. And this is one of the most important things because this is one of the most confusing things. Because in the day that we live, being religious equals faith. And that is not at all what the Bible speaks about. Denominations are described as different positions of the faith. That's not biblical faith. Other people consider us that we just need to have faith in faith. As long as we are sincere about our faith, then God will recognize that faith. And therefore, and the reason that they believe that is because you can take people who are, severe, are sincere in their other religions, whether it's Buddhism or Islam or so, those sort of things. And they say, well, they're sincere. They have faith. And so God will save them. Again, that is not biblical faith. There's no such thing as abstract faith. In fact, you cannot have faith unless there is an object of faith. And if you'll think about this with me for just a second, you'll, you'll understand what I'm talking about before I read Romans 3 to you. Because we can go around with this phrase and people are quite comfortable with this. I have faith. Okay. What do you have faith in? Because that's a pretty bizarre statement. You just need to have faith. I, I remember when Matthew was in the hospital and his parents were sitting there weeping and some of us had gone to the hospital and a person knelt beside them and took their hands and told them, you just got to have faith. And I just wanted to just backhand them out of the way. I'm like, what are you doing to these people? But if I change that word to trust, all the weirdness goes away. Because if I tell you I trust, you immediately say in who or in what? Because we don't have trust in trust. We would all consider that to be weird. But we've spiritualized faith so much that we can say, I have faith. And no one even considers the object. They just see it as sincerity or some sort of inner zealousness and they're comfortable with it. But we should not be comfortable with it because you cannot have faith without an object, just like you cannot have trust without an object. We don't say, I trust. We say, I trust someone or I trust something. And that's exactly what's communicated to us in Scripture. Look at Romans chapter 3. Let me read several verses with you, beginning in verse 21, and we'll see the object of our faith. Romans 3.21 says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested or made known, being testified to or witnessed to by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith, what? In Jesus Christ. There's your object. Through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Let's keep going. For there is no distinction... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as payment or propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's no such thing as faith in faith. And there's no such thing as genuine faith without Jesus. If you don't put it in the right person, you don't have it at all. And that's why faith always has an object. So that's the object of faith. But let me move on so I can keep rolling through these. Let's talk about the necessity of faith. If you're in Romans 3, make your way back to Romans 1. And I'll again show you verse 16. Romans 1, 
verse 16. The Bible says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone. Does it stop there? What does it say? Everyone who believes. Faith is absolutely necessary for salvation. And you would be surprised at the denominations that do not think so. Paul would say in Ephesians 1.18, something very similar. Paul prays that the eyes of our heart might be enlightened so that we would know three things. The hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of being a part of his inheritance. And then in verse 19, Paul says, I pray that your heart might be enlightened so that you will know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. There is no salvation apart from faith. Listen, this is a critical error of the Primitive Baptist Church. And this is why you go to funerals sometimes and you scratch your head. Because they talk about how good people are and how the pastors saw some goodness in them. And they speak of them as if they weren't saved by faith alone. There must be faith. You have to have an understanding, we will see in just a second, to express faith. There is no salvation apart from faith. You can't separate the two. Even Billy Graham himself got tripped up on this one time on the hour of power on television. I forget to get the guy's name right now, but he asked him, so do you consider people who have never heard the gospel, could they possibly be in heaven? And he went on to say, yes, I believe they could. If they have faith and they're sincere in their faith, that's not possible because there's no salvation apart from faith. And our faith has an object and his name is Jesus Christ. And without that particular object of faith, you can't be saved. And we get really uncomfortable at this thought, right? I look today and I don't know if it's gone down since the last couple of years. But there's 7.6 billion people who live on this planet. And the majority of them will live and die and never hear the proclamation of the gospel. And that makes us uncomfortable. For some of us, we want to protect the justice and fairness of God. And so we, we dive off into philosophy to try to clean up God's character because we don't want to make him seem unfair. I mean, that's so unfair that someone could live and die and never hear the gospel and spend eternity separated from God. But we have to understand what the Bible says. And the Bible says that salvation is not possible apart from faith. And faith is not possible apart from the person of Christ. In fact, in a minute, we'll go to Romans 10 if we have time and we'll say, how will they believe unless they hear? And how will they hear without the preaching? And how will they preach, right, without the gospel? There is a particular message that you must hear. And in that message, you must have faith in order to be saved. Because these two, two, these two things cannot be separated. It's just the truth of Scripture, whether it makes sense to us or not, whether we accept it or not, it does not matter. This is how God has chosen to work. This is what God has said in His Word. But it makes perfect sense to me. The treasures of heaven are only for a particular group of people. My inheritance is only for a particular group of people, and there are three. My inheritance is only for my children. Your, your children, however small it is, will not be receiving anything upon my death. My three will receive all my treasures that I've left behind. And God is the same way. His power is toward us who believe the people who are of faith. Which points to something we'll talk about in just a second, but I, I got to go ahead and mention it. That must mean faith is a gift. And if you come to that conclusion, you're absolutely right. Now, let's talk about the independence of faith before we get to the gift of faith. The independence of faith. We say these words sola fide and sola is nothing but a Latin word that means solo. And if I were to sing a solo, that means I would be up here all by myself. 
and the church would empty very quickly, right? But when we say sola fide, we literally mean faith alone. I think it was four years ago we got ourselves in trouble because we, we taught the kids the five solas where we say that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the word of God alone, to the glory of God alone. That's where we stand. We are Protestants. We are not Catholics. And that's where we believe our salvation is. It is in Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because if you add anything to faith, what have you done? You've absolutely ruined it. The Jews wanted to add something to faith. They wanted to add circumcision because circumcision was the Old Testament covenant people of God. And so they said, yes, faith in Christ is good, but you must be circumcised. And Paul says, you've destroyed the gospel. That's the whole book of Galatians. The Catholic Church wants to go, faith, yes, you're justified by your faith, but you must keep the sacraments. No. The moment that you add anything to faith is the moment that you've ruined faith. Faith must stand absolutely alone. Faith does not work in concert with God. It is not you and God working together to bring about your salvation. It is faith and faith Alone, It is either faith plus nothing or there is no faith at all. You're in Romans 1. Look at verse 17. This is this interesting phrase. Romans 1.17 says, For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That's how Paul says faith alone. He says from beginning to end, salvation is of faith. There's nothing in it that's not faith. There's nothing that can be added to it from the tip of your head to the tip of your toes. Every bit of your salvation is by faith. And so we trust in the Lord that his word is true. That's why he goes on in 117 to say this. The righteous man shall live by faith. Now, it's interesting. He's almost repeating Something that said in Leviticus 18 when the Lord gives the law and he tells them, so you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. In other words, do this and live in the Old Testament law. And they could not do that. And God is trying to teach them everything comes from me. I'm the source of life and everything else. And the only thing that is required of you is to trust me. And so when we hear the gospel proclaimed, that's exactly what we hear. The righteous man shall live by faith. You have eternal life through trusting in the person of God and in the work of God, period. And in that we rest. We will eventually get to Romans 3 where Paul says, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works. Now, just a couple of more things. And this is probably... To me, the most enlightening thing, it's the most useful thing, and that's the elements of faith. And I want to give you three. Now, it'd be difficult for you to find these in Scripture. Let's be perfectly honest with you. And so these are theologians trying their best to help us understand this process of faith that we walk through. And there's three English words. I'll give them to you. Knowledge belief, and then trust. But I'll also give you the Latin words because they're very useful as well. And I'll give you my notes if you can't figure out how to spell these things and those sort of things. But let's, let's talk about the first element of faith. And that's the word notitia or knowledge. And this is what I said. Faith requires that you know something. You can't trust in something you don't know. Paul says this in Romans 10. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Knowledge. And that's why I preach and teach the way that I do. Because everything starts with an understanding. You have to understand. You have to have the knowledge that Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place for your sins. You have to understand substitutionary atonement as best as your mind can grasp. 
You have to understand the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. There are things that you must comprehend in your mind. And the Bible says, unless someone preach it, how can they believe it? And the answer to that is they cannot. So it must be preached. And this is where many people stop. They simply stop with the knowledge. Oh, I know. Jesus Christ. Yes, I know. This is where probably the majority of the people are. I know who Jesus Christ is. He was the Son of God. I know He died on the cross. I know, I know, I know, I know. And so when you're trying to share the gospel with somebody and you're trying to give them the elements of the gospel, the things that they must understand, the response is, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. And so you need to understand that, no, they're not saved. They think they are, but all they have is knowledge. They've got a bunch of facts in their heads. They comprehend facts. But those facts are dead because those facts don't save. That's notitia, Latin word for knowledge. The second word is the word ascensus, and this is where we get our word ascent, and that's where we take that knowledge and we assent to it or we believe it. Now here's where a significant number of church people go. Ascent is where we hear the truth and we become absolutely convinced. We might even argue with them that what we believe is true. That knowledge has rested in our hearts and we're deeply convicted by it. Right? In other words, someone might ask you what can wash away our sins and you might respond, nothing but the blood of Jesus. They might beg you, tell me what can make me whole again and you might say, nothing but the blood of Jesus because you're deeply convicted by the facts that you heard and you, you believe that they, they're true. Let me ask you something. Are you saved at that point? No. Not at all. You have knowledge and you have conviction, but you haven't made it past Satan yet. Let me show you what I mean. If you're, well, turn back with me real quickly. Go back to Luke chapter 4. And I want to show you two passages where Satan has assented to who Jesus Christ is. Let's start in Luke 4, chapter 4, verse 31. It says, Jesus came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. And the demon cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone. What business do we have with each other? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's a census. Not only did he receive the knowledge, but the demon believed the knowledge to be true. The demon confessed who Jesus Christ was. And brothers and sisters, I hope you realize the demon won't be in heaven. He knew he would argue. In fact, I would say the demon understood who Jesus was better than we do. He was terrified of who Jesus was. In fact, in Luke 4, back in verse 1, when Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit out into the desert and Satan finally approaches him and speaks to him, the devil said to them, and we have it in our text, if you are the son of God, make this stone become bread, right? But it's better translated since you are because it's not a question. It's a statement. Satan literally says, since you are the son of God, turn this stone into bread. See, Satan knew exactly who Jesus was. He wasn't asking the question. He was tempting him to do something because of who he was. Satan has assented to the knowledge of the son of God. He's completely terrified at him, but he's not saved by him. So there's a difference between this notitia and this census, and I'm afraid and I'm fearful that so many in the church today have not gone past this point. They would argue with you about the Christianity just like they would argue about politics or they would argue about football. They believe it to be true, but they've yet to take the final step, which in Latin is known as fiducia, but which we simply call is trust. 
You've simply not allowed your life to fall headlong in what you know to be true. You've not given your life over to Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. You come to worship. You agree with all the things that we say. You nod your head. You say amen, but you do not know him as your personal Lord and Savior. Uh, Allison read a, a thing from Francis at the graveside yesterday, and she referred to him as my. She referred to the Lord as my Lord. And see, between a census and fiducia is the difference between the Lord and my Lord. And until he is your personal Lord, you do not know him and you will not be saved by him. I'm glad you listen and you understand. I'm glad you argue this to be true. But please be sure that you've entrusted him with your life. That you've turned from your sins and put your faith or your trust in Jesus Christ. That brings me to the source of faith. I want to walk through this and then we'll be finished. Because faith is not something, and many disagree with me at this point, I'll confess, but I'll walk you through it and I'll let you make your own decision. Faith is not something that we all possess. And I'll take you back to this because Faith or the gospel is not necessarily an invitation as much as it is a command to believe. Many are under the impression that we all have faith and God is chewing his fingernails, just hoping that somehow, some way that we'll exercise faith in him. And he's just biding time working in our lives, trying to get us to just trust him. But we underestimate how fallen we are and how sinful we are. Let me remind you of some things that happened in the Old Testament that never elicited faith in God. First of those, it was God himself who rescued his people from Egypt with 10 powerful, unbelieving plagues. And they did not trust him. God is the one who walked his people on the bottom of the sea on dry ground. And when they reached the other side, he let the water go and drowned all their enemies and they did not trust him. God is the one that fed them with bread from heaven and water from a rock. And they did not trust him. God is the one that came down on Mount Sinai in a terrifying sight. And the top of the mountain was on fire. And he spoke to them and he gave them his word. And they did not trust him. In fact, I told you to turn there and I don't want to forget Go with me to Ezekiel 36, and I want to show you the promise that God gives to them when they did not trust him. Ezekiel chapter 36, and I want to begin in, man, I really want to read it all, but I know I've got it for the sake of time. Let me begin in verse 24. And I want you to notice not only what God is doing for them, but I want you to notice the phrase, I will. And you will see all that the Father is doing for his people. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 24. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone, the cold, dead heart from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in all my statutes and you will be careful to observe all my ordinances. Who's doing all of that? God is doing every bit of that. And so somehow many believe that this cold, dead heart that's not Godward in any respect somehow is able to muster up some kind of faith. And again, God moves in and does all this. 
In fact, I, I can't see anything but faith when God says, I will put a new spirit in you and I will put a new heart in you and I will put obedience in you. Brothers and sisters, it's difficult to find, to find faith better than that. Faith itself is a gift from God. That faith that you have in God, God has given you that. If you don't like that, let me give you several passages just very quickly that are found in the New Testament. For instance, Acts 13, 48, it says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as has been appointed to eternal life, they believed or had faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes, Therefore I make known to you, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. In other words, you can't even say, I have faith in, in Christ Jesus as my Lord and Savior, unless the Holy Spirit's animated you. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast, for we are God's work. Workmanship. A few more. Philippians is filled with them. Paul writes in Philippians, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. Philippians 2. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 1.29, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, not only to believe, but also to suffer. It has been granted to you to believe. And then finally, 2 Peter 1. Peter begins his letter in this way. Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Peter says, I'm writing to those who've received a faith just like I have received a faith from God. And I have trusted in God. In other words, what we're required to have, we're given by grace. It all comes from God. Which brings me to my last point, and that is the response of faith. You say then, well, how then can I respond because I'm sitting and, and, and waiting, if you're right, I'm simply waiting on faith. Well, I would encourage you to respond in this way that our Lord writes about in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. After he completely blows the people's mind in regard to salvation, the Lord almost concludes, this is at the, near the very end with this thought. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and him who knocks it will be opened. What is there a man among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish he will give him a sake? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more would your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? And I know of no better good that God can give you than the gift of faith. Because through faith, you and I are saved. It's not a work. You can't box it in. You can't define it. It expresses itself in such peculiar ways. Brothers and sisters, I, I, I plead with you with all my heart. Put your faith or your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have the knowledge. You have every bit of it. In fact, I would go so far to say as you agree with it. You probably agree with almost everything, if not everything that I have said. But that last step of trust, that part you have to do. That part is where you lean with all your weight onto God. Another example, and I told you there's literally hundreds, is the example of the stool. You exercise biblical faith every time you sit down in a chair because you've already decided in your heart that that chair is going to hold me up. And so by faith, you sit. 
It's really that simple. But you have to trust in God. And if you're sitting there going, I can't, I won't, I've got an excuse, da, 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 da. Ask God for faith to trust in him with all your heart. And I'm convinced that prayer he will answer. Let's pray.